to watch an intro at the end of this. But I'm not there yet, so. Who knows, maybe the Lord will come back before then. I don't know, maybe not. But over my short number of years, I've come to believe that some of the most rewarding things in life only come through that process. You know, do you want that uh, that perfect you know landscape photo on vacation, whether it's the, the mountains or the beach or, or whatever else? Or you're gonna have to make some efforts. You're gonna have to either get up before sunrise, or you're gonna have to be there at just the right time at the right juncture. Uh, do you want to be healthier? Again, I, I know this is when everyone's supposed to join the gym, and then everyone uncancels their membership in February. Well, so if you want to be healthier in 2023, that's not just going to happen. Instead, you'll need to deny yourself certain foods or habits. You'll need to make time to be active and very intentional about that. Uh, perhaps you want to be a leader at your at your job. You want to be the go-to sort of person, the one that others look to. And if so, that's going to take a whole lot of time and effort to build up that sort of trust, that sort of reputation. It takes time. It takes effort. Resting is What Paul is going to challenge us with this morning is that effort also a part of the Christian life. What's more, that effort will often take place in the midst of hardship, even opposition. This God-given, Spirit-inspired, Christ-exalting effort, then, is the hallmark, the indicator, the norm of Christian discipleship. It's the calling card of Christian ministry. Paul wants us to see how in in the middle of needing to endure right at the very center of our own trials that we can grow, that we can have genuine joy. Let me say that again because our whole world is telling us just the opposite. Well, once you you get everything right, once you have the, the perfect health and the perfect job and the perfect family, then you will have joy. don't have health, they have all kinds of family struggles and problems, the work isn't going well, and yet they have hope. And it is a different hope. Paul Simon is a different expression of that joy in Christ, I believe. So, Paul wants us to see how in the middle of needing to endure see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I invite you to join me there. As always, if you you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. 1 Thessalonians is probably the Bible. Sure way to find it. Look it up on the table of contents. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as we enter in, we're going to see that Paul writes about the ministry that, that he and 
Cyrus in finishing what he gave Jerusalem, and in a very short time, the people were in Thessalonica. It's not going to be quite the missionary discourse that we are asked to know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, for our appeal does not spring from royal impurity or any afflicted of Jews, but just as we have been approved by God trusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please Christ, who trusts us. Thousands of words keep going here in a few minutes, but already I want you to see the truth that we need to grasp here in this, this ministry that, that Paul and Paul and company, we'll call them, were engaged in, was pleasing to God. See that word failure, probably an image of some sort comes to mind for you. Maybe for some of you it's a, a bad grade, literally, a giant red F. Maybe it's not getting uh, the raise or the promotion. What does failure look like in Christianity? Does it look like being driven out of town soon after arriving? not getting to stay and impact people's lives in that way. You know, it would be easy to argue that Paul's mission in Thessalonica was a failure. When I look through my, my job description in our church's bylaws, nowhere do I see that you should upset enough people in Sioux City that they should run you out of town. You know, it's not in there. Maybe it was in an older version, but it's not in this version. Right, we would see that probably as failure in many circumstances. Not so here. And yet this is the God we worship. Now I don't know of anyone who counts stirring up a violent mob as a failure. I've never read a report from one of our missionaries stating that their goal was to frustrate everybody and end up getting kicked out of the ministry. And yet both of those failed So it should be surprising then to us that Paul doesn't see the ministry time that he spent, short though it was, as some bad memory, as something to just kind of forget and leave off the resume and have him do that. Instead, Paul argues that his visit wasn't in vain. It wasn't pointless or purposeful. Said another way, opposition doesn't necessarily mean failure. And what's more, having our own plans not be in line doesn't necessarily mean that the reality here with Paul is that the Lord is in charge of everything. And it's because Paul believed 
certainly was not true here either. It certainly wasn't true in That's because Jesus is the example. He never sinned. He loved everyone around him perfectly. If you and I are to follow after Jesus to some extent, we may be despised by our world. Jesus even warns us if we should do that. then comes in verse 2. Paul writes of how the opposition puts he and those with him out of the way, not, not just to, to cower in fear, but that, that to do God's will to back them, a God-given courage, so that the gospel would be preached sure if you put something on your social media profile about how God's plan for male and female in marriage is, is absolutely best, I almost guarantee you're going to find someone who's not thrilled about that. And yet, if we truly love our neighbors, shouldn't we want that? There were only two examples. Hopefully we can pull up notebooks of all kinds of ways where the culture around what we're saying. I mean, after all, what was Christ's primary message that he came down to again and again to do the gospel? Repent. Many people who repent in a culture that prides itself on being non-judgmental and everyone being what's right in their own eyes is not going to go over well. Yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. 
you're a Christian today is only because that's the message you need to start with in your life. So it is with us. We need to have confidence in Christ. Not in ourselves, not in our strength, not in our arguments, but instead in Christ. We need a confidence that would give us the boldness to not be ashamed of, uh, of anything that our Savior says in His Word. And we need to encourage one another to not be embarrassed by anything that our faith everything has been written here for us in Christ. Everything has been written in Christ for this purpose. This is what God desires. This is what our loving Lord is working through and in you. Let's pray for the text. that's driven by humility rather than anger, and Christ-like rather than meekness. In verses 3 and 4, you're going to find two answers to that. First, Paul rests firmly in faith on what the Lord has said. Part of his boldness comes from what God himself has communicated. So God has given the gospel. He's extended the call to all of humanity that we should turn, repent, and follow Jesus Christ. We need to listen. Matthew 28, then, makes up our marching orders, both individually as Christians and corporately as a, as a church. What would your pastor, what will I do to hear the message of the gospel? Churches can do all kinds of other things in this world, but if they don't make disciples, then they have failed. As a Christian, do all kinds of, uh, of giving and, and social help and, and justice, and those are good things, but if they aren't part of making disciples, then there's nothing distinctively Christian about them. That's a non-Christian to do that exact same kind of thing in us here in the church. Our mission is discipleship. And so Paul's reason then for trumpeting the gospel has nothing to do with him being a, a, a radical or trying to build a new platform for his teaching and his brand of ministry. And, rather, Paul's boldness comes from Christ. And for him and for only him, a plan that involves a radical things that came out of the Reformation was the idea that every single Christian is called by God. Two authors spoke into Paul with this careful mind at Nicene that church. Every single one of you are called by God himself. Every single one of you has a calling in your vocation, in your family, in your neighborhood, in the places where you work. To witness disciples not by multiplying pastors for the churches, but by making disciples of all nations. 
person. God has given this gospel. He has told Paul this gospel, not only in his salvation, but now Paul is taking that to others. Paul has boldness because he believes God gave him faith. Secondly, Paul writes of how God was at work in, in himself and in those who were with him. Now, Paul believed he was chosen by God, and we read in the scriptures that's true for every Christian in America. And it's also true whether you feel like it or not, whether people receive you or not, whether they have a joy in that for you or not. to believe that we are who God says we are. In a world of identities, all kinds of identities, Christians have their identities. Christians are called, are challenged, are to be marked out by having an identity shaped, conformed by Jesus. He is the one whom we follow. He is the one who believes that God really does have a purpose for him. He's at work. And he believes God has a deep purpose for you. For this week, this day, your life, your future. And again, we see that in the scriptures. And because of this, Paul writes to his words not intended to please the audience, not taking opinion for this, but instead written to people. Paul wrote to you and me as he prays that we might see your purpose. Who are you serving? What does that mean? You know, when you, uh, when you talk to your neighbor about to try and justify yourself to say, I don't know. You know, Lord, you know, I'm a, I'm a failure at a lot of things, but I've really tried hard. Look, look at my list of accomplishments. Look at the boxes I've checked. When you sign up to serve here at this church, are you doing that because you feel justified? are the right motivations. That's why we serve. And that's 
for motivation that will help steady you even when you don't have a sense of purpose or you're in a wilderness ambassador, your call and mine is to serve not simply the people that you're trying to help, but the people that you can through your service. Pray for grace. Believe that God can and should encourage one another in what God has called us to do. Paul writes, his heart's for you. Paul writes of how this kind of a ministry isn't just about being excellent at a task or fulfilling a role. It's what we're called as disciples of the Lord. What he just said is a great surprise. For we never preach the word with flattery of men, nor with a pretext for greed, not of you, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands of apostles and prophets, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionate and desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own sins, because you have become very dear to us. So, what does ministry success look like in Paul's eyes? Part of the answer that we had just read was this boldness of serving the king, which we've been trying to please everyone. Part two is to serve our king, our Lord, by coming with a sense of concern. And doing that in a way that's not just a mission, a, a, a task to be checked off, a job, but instead in a way that's people was no people pleaser, although a great one, and everything about his life is written down pretty well, and people were not pleased with him. And I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who's ever struggled with that. To be a people pleaser, by definition, is to seek affirmation from others, often at the expense of believing that you're adding pressure to yourself. To get your value, not from Christ, everyone else, but from church, from your work, from people that you know. That's what being a people pleaser is. And that has all kinds of implications. It means you avoid arguments that sometimes really need to be had. It means to dodge disappointments that you really need to aim to deliver to someone. It's to wrap up your value and self-worth in the opinions of others rather than in the opinion of the Lord. And Paul tells us here that people pleasing we find that he came not trying to build up the Thessalonians just so that they'd like him, so that he'd be accepted or supported. He didn't come, he writes, as a, as a manipulator, seeking to use his, his wit, his wisdom, his, his words um, to make people like him or accept him. No, instead he has come in order to share his life. with yourself. To truly love somebody else well, there are going to be times when you need to say or do something that you're not willing to do. 
make it a parent, and you made it a parent, and you could just say, you know, if you're trying to be mean or unkind, it's because you want the best for your child. Now, in saying this, I don't mean to be glossophobic, that we just, you know, mouth off or, you know, but I do mean that none of us are perfect. None of us see ourselves or our own flaws clearly. And often those around us can see love one another, we'll look for ways to help sharpen our character. Ultimately, Paul is here to discuss awareness. Do. And I realize I probably 
big thing about the lost kids ministry of the Lord's Commission is Mr. Paul didn't do that. He used this old building. After we read all these things of what Paul didn't do, now we see what he did do. He spoke the truth in love. 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 That is a, as a mother to her children, later he's going to use as a father to his children, that sort of familial picture. Duty, but out of Christ I love. That's why Paul shares not only knowledge but himself, his his life full of duty. That's because that's how the gospel works. It's a truth to be believed, yes, but it's also a relationship to God. We must turn thus from God to people sacrificial love. Let's persuade when we are willing to undergo hardship and opposition, our brothers to say good news to people who desperately need it. It's lived out when we don't just tell people about Jesus, but when we invite them to come to see Jesus with us. We invite them into our lives to show them, hey, here's how I'm following him. Here's how Jesus is the Savior he has given us. This is what it means then to, to show how Christ is transforming us and loving us and giving grace to us. Let us do it likewise. And this is what it means to take joy in our Savior, even when this obviously inside the church or outside. So whether you work in a cubicle or at the church door or home or grocery store, ultimately we need to pray and to look to the Lord for each one of us and to hunger in our seems obvious, doesn't it? And so, but here it just goes. I want to invite you to do something here, a simple thing. Look around our church. Look back to what you perhaps read in the newspaper, seen on the news, heard over the radio. Is this pattern of entertainment, of, of a boldness that is rooted not My argument is no, it's not. Generally, how people are being formed today, how they're being called to things, they're not doing that. And getting angry and all sorts of you know, arguments and shutting people down. And so whoever talks the loudest or has the most money gets the microphone. And what I want you to notice is that's not what the Bible teaches. Some 
authors, not Faithful by Augustine. Some of you were thinking that, but I'm not the one that thought that. No, this one was Dr. Don Carter, who's a professor at our denomination in Rome, and he was talking about the Catholic Church, and he gave this example. It wasn't even his own example, but it comes uh, back from his analysis. And there was this, you know, another college student living on the dorm floor with him, and one of the things that Carson notes is how he learned discipleship from this person's life. Because this guy would, you know, uh, someone on the dorm floor would learn he's a Christian, and you know, usually a college student too, and pepper him with what if and questions. And, and his response again and again and again was, Thank you. So you're wanting to know how I can follow Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want to know, because we don't think that's possible. And, you know, what about our complicated world?
and how that works to keep people under you. I realize that when it comes to challenges, and what's my share, and that kind of stuff, it works. When we show them integrity, when we show them that we genuinely care, they will follow us to the end. And it's such an interesting thing. When you do all the things that our world says that every institution should do, you invite them into that space of uncertainty. Tell us truly, what would it look like to live alongside your other students in such a way that what they see from you is it's not just that you do and say and think everything that's popular is here right now, but, but that you actually care about them as much as they care about you. And that you actually have a confidence that's rooted not in how many likes or how many social media posts I have, but in how many outwardly trusting, genuine friends I have. And so obsessed with what he says, going to boil down then this entire message is this. Practicing wisdom for all times. At all times. Whatever that looks like in your own life, in your own situation, I demand that you practice Thank you. 